Welcome back to Voir Dire, conversations from the program in criminal justice at the Harvard Kennedy School. Today, I'm bringing you a conversation between me and Jenny Montoya Tanzi of the Public Rights Project. We're going to talk about their work on the corporate enforcement gap, which is around the number of people who are victims of corporate abuse in this country and the ways that criminal justice actors like prosecutors and attorneys general can use their powers to close that gap. I'm really excited about this conversation in particular because as we have conversations about reimagining the criminal legal system, we also want to think about what we would like it to be doing instead. And closing the corporate enforcement gap seems like a great place to start. So here's our conversation. Tell me a little bit about what the Public Rights Project does and why did you want to go work at Public Rights Project? Sure. Public Rights Project is still a fairly new national nonprofit organization. We got started in 2017, and our mission is to close the gap between what our laws promise in terms of economic justice, civil rights, and what underserved communities actually experience. We work at the intersection of community organizing and state, local, and tribal government because both government and communities are really critical to closing that gap. And we believe that, you know, only working together can we equitably enforce the law in those areas. Just to give an example, to make this a little bit more concrete, in the past five or 10 years, it's been really inspiring. I don't know if you've followed at all, but workers have been fighting and winning a ton of new local labor protections from minimum wage increases to paid sick days to fair scheduling laws. But research shows that many, many, many low-wage workers don't actually get the benefits of those protections. So for example, in the minimum wage context, one in five low-wage workers still earns less than the minimum wage in their community, even though it's illegal for their employers to pay them less. And I think that's sort of what happens when we invest and in, and dream big about what the law should require, um, but we don't really think about how to make sure the law comes true, not just for some workers, but for all workers, including black and brown workers, immigrant workers, and other workers who may be isolated or for whatever reason feel less safe speaking up when their bosses flout the law. So that leads into what excites me about this conversation is because we've spent a lot of time talking about how to do less in the criminal legal system, which is very important, but also what is an affirmative vision for what you know public actors should be doing. So can you talk a little bit about how prosecutors or other sort of agencies that are typically involved in the legal system, how they fit into public rights projects, vision and mission? Yeah, absolutely. So first, I'll say a little bit about white government in general, as opposed to the private bar, for example. And then I'll say a little bit about white prosecutors specifically. So in terms of white government, I'll start just by saying that the path for a worker or another community resident to fight for their rights, as you probably know, as a public defender, has never been easy. First, people need to understand what their rights are. They need to overcome maybe in the workplace context, fear of retaliation from their bosses for speaking up, or even in the criminal justice context, there's other kinds of like concerns around um, retaliation that could potentially come into play. And then they need to identify somebody that can help them, which, you know, in a world where legal services are really underfunded can also be 
a huge challenge. But in recent years, this process has become even more difficult. And that's because of forced arbitration clauses and class action waivers, which have really blocked workers and consumers from getting in court. And increasingly has meant that government is the only entity that can protect their collective rights and get into court. So state, local, and tribal governments, I would say in particular, are important. And that's where we place our focus at Public Rights Project for one additional reason, which is that even with the Biden administration taking really important actions to champion working families, there's a lot of limits to what can be accomplished at the federal level right now. We have a bitterly divided Congress. We have a Supreme Court that's captured by super right-wing justices who are very hostile to the rights of workers and consumers. And I think um, for that reason, the federal courts or federal agencies are a challenging place to get some of this work done. And so that's why we work at the levels of government that we do. And then to come to why prosecutors specifically, I would say that's because As you probably know, increasingly, I think criminal justice practitioners, including the most forward-thinking prosecutors, are using a public health framework to make decisions about how to create safer communities. And I think what that framework tells us is that the most effective investments we can make for public safety emphasize prevention, they emphasize increasing the overall well-being of community residents, and things like ensuring stable housing that's affordable, that's safe, you know, making sure folks have access to meaningful work with fair wages um, and that they have a clean environment with clean water and clean air are actually critical pieces of a research-based vision for how to create safe communities. And the role of a prosecutor in that work, you know, I would say prosecutors are part of a big, much bigger ecosystem of actors that help realize that vision, but they do play an important role because I think when it comes to holding corporations accountable to the floors and bars that we set in society around stuff like equality jobs, prosecutors are needed to hold those corporations accountable when they violate those laws. And they have a bunch of tools, including both civil and criminal authority to do that. So we are really excited to see, I think, a growing number of them interested in looking at those types of harms, particularly because those harms actually hurt some of the communities that have historically been and still are today over-policed, over-incarcerated, et cetera. And finally, I'll just say for those who are kind of interested in thinking about prosecutors as a key leverage point for criminal justice reform and reducing mass incarceration, et cetera. I think we're also seeing that as an accompaniment to that very important agenda, in order for those prosecutors to win office and stay in office, it's also really important to their constituents that they have a positive agenda that's tough on something that that where they're using those tools to further public safety. And I think that corporate accountability can be a really important part of that positive agenda. Great. So yes, let's talk about corporate abu- abuse for, for two reasons. One, I think it's a great example of, of where the rubber hits the road of what Public Rights Project is advocating for. And two, I read this report and I just wanted to nerd out on it. You know what I mean? I feel like we're having two conversations, right? We're having conversations about the role of companies and the destructive role that they've they've started 
or they have taken in, in society. And we're having conversations about what the role of state actors and prosecutors should be. And this is where they intersect. And so when mm -hmm. I saw this like last year, Yes, finally, they're coming together. So let's talk about the corporate enforcement gap. And let's just start with how you came to zero in on corporate abuse as a place where the public rights project wanted to spend its time or, or sort of how you became aware that this was a problem in a place where state, act, you know, local actors could be doing more. Yeah, absolutely. When I first started at Public Rights Project, we had developed this mission that I mentioned earlier around closing the gap between the promise of our laws and what people actually experience in the marketplace or in the workplace. And as we started to think about how to make the case to our government and community partners about that as an area for focus, we realized that there wasn't enough research on the size of that gap. So we know that, for example, there are many low-wage workers who feel they can't take paid leave that they're entitled to, but how many, you know? Or we also know, obviously, that illegal evictions occur, but it's hard to capture, or there's not enough research that really captures how many tenants are having that experience. And so uh, we decided that in order to paint a picture of the stakes for our community members, when we don't enforce those laws, we needed to do some research of our own. And so we commissioned a poll in 2019 as a pretty large national poll by David Binder Research of 2000 people, adults in the US. And it showed that 54% of adults in the U.S. are victims of harmful illegal business practices, which we call corporate abuse, including wage theft, predatory lending, unsafe or unlivable rental housing conditions, or corporate pollution that was severe enough that it caused them health problems. And that 54% number, actually, even though I expected the number would be high, I was pretty surprised that a majority of Americans said that they'd experienced one of those things in the last 10 years. The most common form of corporate abuse was actually wage theft. Wage theft covers a bunch of different kinds of situations from being forced to work off the clock to having your boss take your tips, to being paid less than minimum wage. And four in 10 people said that they'd had that experience at a job in the last 10 years. Almost four in 10 people also said that they'd been victims of predatory lending or predatory debt collection, including situations like having to repay a debt they didn't owe, getting a bunch of obscene or threatening phone calls from debt collectors or being charged fees or interest that they hadn't agreed to. So it's a range of behaviors that we encapsulate under that term. And I also wanted to mention that as eye-popping as that 54% number is, I actually think it's likely an underestimate. We were only, because we did a national poll, we were only able to ask people about a few different kinds of corporate abuse that are broadly illegal across the United States. I think for people who live in cities where their city council has been active in you know, putting in place tenant protections or new kinds of worker protections, there's actually probably a whole bunch of other illegal business practices that workers and tenants are suffering there. And then also, of course, there's a range of harms like discrimination, for example, that I think are often harder to raise your hand and say, I experienced this because when you get turned down for an apartment or a job or you get extra points on your mortgage, 
you're not really told why you probably need to look at like a bigger set of data to understand whether that's occurring. And so, yeah, overall, we just learned it's part of the fabric of the American experience right now. And we also learned that while a majority of adults have experienced corporate abuse, there are some groups of people that are much more likely to have been victimized and particularly victimized over and over in a variety of different ways. So people of color, women, low-income people, and young people in particular were often repeat victims of corporate abuse. Got it. And so I just want to make sure that, that we've drilled down. So, and you're defining corporate abuse for purposes of, of this survey that you did. You mentioned mm-hmm. wage theft, you mentioned predatory lending. I think mm-hmm. at one point you've also mentioned there was some some housing issues. Can you just make sure? Yeah, so the, wage the theft. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, for purposes of this poll, we defined corporate abuse as four sets of experiences. One was wage theft. One was predatory lending and predatory debt collection. One was being forced to live in unsafe or unlivable mental housing conditions. So the way we asked this question was around whether you'd experienced unsafe or unlivable rental housing that your landlord refused to repair. And we heard a lot of stories. We also did a bunch of interviews as part of this report. So we heard from a lot of people in the housing context who, for example, had lived without water or heat or had had like serious mold problems in their apartment that had caused them breathing problems, et cetera, that their landlords had taken no action on. And then the last we asked people about was health problems from corporate pollution. I initially thought that might be one of the um, harms that we got the highest response rate to just because living in Oakland, so many people are affected by fire and there's just like a lot of asthma also from the port, but we, we got the least response to that. And we asked people an open-ended question about what they, what they were referring to when we talked about corporate pollution. And most people were referring to basically like worker safety issues. So for example, we talked to women who worked for a landscaping company who was exposed to like a lot of particulate matter from the equipment that she used at work and wasn't given masks despite repeated requests. And yeah, other workers, in some cases, community residents who say like lived down the road from a warehouse with a ton of diesel trucks, you know, coming in and out whose children had developed asthma, et cetera. And I think we also often saw how those harms like compounded on each other. Some of the tenants that we talked to in the Bay Area had grown up in Martinez and Richmond, which is an area that has some oil refineries that have caused like really high rates of asthma. And they talked about later being having their asthma triggered when they lived in mold filled apartments or apartments that didn't have good air ventilation where they're being exposed to secondhand smoke. And so it's kind of, it kind of shows you how for you know, particularly for low-income people, some of those early experiences can then kind of create this cycle where they're being re-victimized and like the harm that they're experiencing from each kind of re-victimization or or new incident is like compounds itself. And it's more severe because of some of that earlier exposure. So I have many questions based on that, but before we, let's just finish sort of setting the table. So can you talk about what are the harms uh, that are coming both obviously to those the individual surveyed, the victims of corporate abuse, but also, you know, is there a way to measure the impact of this kind of behavior on community, community safety, community health, et cetera? 
Yeah. So the t- we asked individuals about the types of harm that they had experienced as a result. I mean, obviously, in many instances, there's direct financial harm from lost wages or fees and penalties that people paid in a predatory lending situation. People also talked a lot about the impact that it had had just in terms of chronic stress, things you actually might hear from other kinds of crime victims like trouble sleeping, trouble with relationships, and, you know, just the stress of dealing with a situation that you feel kind of is out of your control and is hurting you. So I think typical kind of trauma symptoms people talked about. In terms of the impact on community safety or on communities more broadly, there have been some attempts to capture the total loss, for example, to local economies from harms like wage theft, tens of billions of dollars in lost wages for low-wage workers, which, depending on the economic profile of a city, could actually have huge downstream economic impacts for small businesses, et cetera, just in terms of people's ability to spend money at local businesses and take care of their families. In terms of safety, we saw also a really strong correlation between people's experiences with corporate abuse and their experiences with other kinds of interpersonal crime or street crime. That was actually the strongest link in our study. Basically, we learned that victims of corporate abuse are about 3.5 times more likely to say they've also been a victim of a violent crime. And I think that in some ways, it's not surprising. If you look at victimization research in the criminal justice context, you'll find that having been a victim of a crime previously is the single strongest predictor that you'll be a victim of a crime in the future. And there's a bunch of ways that that can play out, but it essentially has to do with like characteristics that can make people more vulnerable. Sometimes that actually has to do with their profession. For example, you know, sex workers are at risk for a lot of different kinds of abuse and interpersonal violence. Also, there's characteristics that could make you more vulnerable both to corporate abuse and to violent victimization, like being undocumented. You know, you're more likely to experience wage theft. You're also more likely to get robbed because for a range of reasons, people tend to assume people might be carrying cash. They also might assume that they're not going to report the crime. And so it's lower risk for them as a perpetrator. And I think, so anyway, so we pulled out some of those kinds of connections as well. I also looked at some research to kind of tease out the correlation a little bit better and found some really interesting studies about workers' rights abuses, including wage theft, basically anything that reduces women's relative earnings, putting them at greater risk for hospitalization from domestic violence. And I think ultimately, I'd love more research to be done, but I suspect it's just because it's really tough to leave an unsafe relationship when you're also being exploited at work and you're having trouble figuring out how, you know, you could put the money together to leave. So there's a bunch of different kinds of connections. And I know, I mean, I'm sure this is impossible to parse out based on your survey, but, you know, it's unclear if it's a correlative or causal relationship right there. But I'm guessing that your point is that these you know, these things compound, right? And so wherever in the cycle you start, it can yeah. kind of spiral. 
Yeah, that's great. I, I think, like I said, I'm, I'm really interested in doing some more research specifically on those points of connection, but I suspect it's a complex relationship. It's probably a mix of, of, of like ways that people kind of enter into that cycle, entry points, and then sort of how those experiences mutually reinforce each other, depending on the type of crime and the type of corporate abuse and sort of your own background and context that you're living in. But what I think is clear is that if prosecutors are interested in thinking about how they might be able to begin to understand some of the harms that are going on in their community that fall into the corporate abuse category, they probably just need to walk down the hall to victim services to find a lot of people who are experiencing harmful, illegal practices at work or in their community. And so I do think that talking to victims and survivors of crime themselves about those points of connection and like where to start with the corporate accountability agenda might be a really good entry point for district attorneys. What is, what is actually the toolkit that district attorneys or AGs have to address corporate abuse? Sure. So district attorneys have a range of different tools tools that they can use to address corporate abuse. I think to some degree, the scope of their authority depends on where they're located because it's shaped by state law. In some parts of the country, district attorneys have quite broad civil and criminal authority to enforce laws protecting workers and tenants in the environment. In other parts of the country, just strictly in terms of that type of authority, they're, they're more limited to criminal authority. But I think no matter where a prosecutor's office is located. They also have a range of other tools, including influencing their legislative agenda, also providing support to other offices that are bringing these types of cases. We have a really active amicus practice at Public Rights Project where we help local governments sort of weigh in on cases maybe that another government has brought or that have been brought by private attorneys on these issues. And I think that's often a common first thing that an office will do that hasn't done this type of work before is is way in via an, an amicus brief. But I think for offices that are looking to build a bit more capacity and, you know, and be more active in this area, really the first thing to do, I think, is get a sense of the issues in their own community that are affecting workers, that are affecting community residents in, you know, in a consumer or environmental context or housing context. I think there are often a range of different community and labor groups in a community who haven't necessarily thought about the DA as as somebody that they should be in dialogue with about the issues that they see confronting community residents, but they might actually be really have a lot to share in that context. I think often labor groups think more about like the state labor department is like they're a stakeholder of the state labor department and that's where they bring those types of issues. But I, I, I think setting up some community meetings and kind of listening sessions to get a better scan of where people are feeling energy in the community around these types of issues would probably be a great first step. And then as I mentioned, I 
I actually think that victim services is another great place to start as well. There, there may even be, you know, stuff that's come up in the context of services that the office is already providing. But even if not, I think incorporating some questions around that to victims that the office is in frequent contact with could be another good first step. And, and then other government agencies can also be a great source of referrals. So specifically in the workers' rights context, state labor agencies often have an issue recovering unpaid wage claims from a certain set of like serial repeat violators that have kind of built wage theft, for example, into their business model. They will basically, as soon as they get an order to pay back pay to workers, they'll move to hide assets or they'll shut their company down and reopen with the same staff and the same office, but a new name in an attempt to evade having to pay that order. And I think for that smaller group of repeat violators, an arrest warrant can be a really powerful way to get them to get their checkbook out. And so even if a DA's workers' rights practice was limited to taking referrals of that type of violator from a state labor agency and just making sure that workers actually get the back pay that they're owed, that would be a hugely impactful way to leverage criminal tools that the state agency doesn't have access to. Are you ever worried that when you advocate building out a new practice, say in a DA's or an AG's office, that it ends up getting used, you know, just kind of ends up building another arm of a machine that's abusing, sucking in and spitting out, you know, black and brown people and causing, you know, causing real harm to those communities. How do you think about the tension between building out those offices and the known harm that the system has done in the past to communities of color or marginalized communities? Yeah, I think that is clearly a really important concern. First, I think just by way of clarity, I'll say, again, many prosecutors have civil authority that they use to bring these cases. So I think we're used to thinking of district attorneys only operating in the criminal law context. But I also think it's important to say that I actually don't think bringing criminal law to bear on predatory employers who take advantage of their workers exacerbates the injustices of our criminal justice system. I think if anything, Doing those types of cases shows black and brown workers and immigrant workers that criminal law can work for them and not just against them. And I also think it's important to understand that prosecutors, like I said, are just one part of a larger ecosystem of enforcement agencies that help enforce the rights of workers, tenants, and consumers. So those agencies have a range of different enforcement tools from mediation to administrative hearings to informal settlements to civil lawsuits that can be brought to bear. I would kind of analogize it to a more recent revelation in the traditional criminal law context that criminal prosecution is not a one-size-fits-all response to drug, property, or violent crime, which has led to the creation of you know, an insufficient number of pretrial diversion programs, restorative justice programs. We need a bunch of different tools. Well, thank you for writing this report. As I said, I, I nerded out over it like a year ago. And as soon as the podcast came back into existence, because it was on hiatus, this was top of my list. So I really appreciate your work. Thank you so much, Skylar. I'll talk to you later. Take care. Bye. Okay. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to learn more, you can read the report on the Public Rights Project's website. 
Thank you to Poddington Bear for composing our theme music and to Brian Welch for all of his support.